one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 25, The Roaring Thirties. Last time, we saw Belisarius corner the Gothic army in Ravenna, and by trickery, enter the city, take King Vitiges back to Constantinople, and await his second triumph. That didn't happen though. Instead, Belisarius returned home to news of an empire being assaulted. Before we get to Khusro's invasion, though, we need to catch up on events elsewhere in the empire throughout the 530s. Wait a minute, you say? We've covered all that. Africa fell, the Hagia Sophia was built, the laws were codified, Justinian went from one triumph to another, and only at the end of the decade did problems begin to emerge. As you know, though, history is never that simple. The 530s saw Byzantium at its peak. The wealth and strength of the empire fell into the hands of a man with the ambition to make that power felt. However, under the surface, cracks were beginning to appear. Justinian wanted to reform and rebuild everything, and his attempts to do so led to instability, resentments, and an underlying weakness in imperial defense. Like the 1920s, which this episode's title was inspired by, a decade of prosperity and achievement was about to give way to one of depression and devastation. Having survived the Nika revolt in 532, the emperor was feeling bullish. With Trebonian scribbling away next door, and the Hagia Sophia rising slowly outside, Justinian turned his mind to the most intractable problem he faced, the Monophysites. Overtures toward the leaders of the Eastern Church had been made before Nika broke out, and once the dust had settled, some representatives made their way to the capital for informal discussions. These were followers of Severus, the man who had advised Anastasius to alter the Trisagion. Justinian was very interested in theology, but at this stage didn't have a passionate attachment to a particular viewpoint, as his uncle had. He genuinely listened to the Monophysite point of view, and tried hard to find a solution that could unite the church. The Monophysites, as you know, believed that Christ had one nature. That nature was part human and part divine. The Orthodox believed basically the same thing, 
except that they adhered to the Council of Chalcedon's formula, which used the description that Christ had two natures. The Orthodox meant part human and part divine, but the Monophysites were afraid that this two natures description was an understated way of saying that Jesus had an entirely human nature. The idea that Christ had a human nature was the theology of the Nestorians, who had been so discredited that they had been driven from the empire. By March 533, Justinian felt he had found a formula by which he could gain general agreement. He hosted a conference in the capital and announced an edict whose wording avoided using the two natures description and simply stated that Christ was divine, human, and a single person. Pope John II approved the edict, and Severus himself responded to an invitation from Theodora to come and reside in Constantinople. The emperor even managed to temporarily excommunicate the capital's sleepless monks who objected strongly to his edict. Justinian felt he'd done all he could to find a formula by which the church could happily unite and forget their divisions. However, despite the general murmurs of agreement, nothing really changed. It's important to understand that by now, eight decades had passed since the Council of Chalcedon. The differences between the two sides were entrenched in the culture, and were less about the actual words than what those words might represent. Each side had spent a lifetime thinking of their opposition as heretics, and government persecution had aided that alienation. There was also the geographical split, which aided the sense of opposing identities, so it just wasn't possible to issue an edict and expect everyone to be on the same page. Justinian felt hopeful, though, that some common ground had been found. Theodora persuaded him to approve a new Monophysite patriarch for Alexandria in 535, and then went one better when the patriarch in Constantinople died in the same year. Justinian promoted a candidate who, while loyal to Chalcedon, was openly friendly with Severus. The appointment of Anthemus suggested that perhaps the way forward was for the Orthodox to appease rather than attack the Monophysites. But it was not to be. Those entrenched positions soon came back into play, to break up any hope of compromise. What else happened in 535? Why the war in Italy, of course. When Amalasuntha was killed and Justinian's envoys threatened war, Theoda had exhausted every diplomatic option he could think of to ensure peace. The most powerful man in his kingdom was, of course, the Pope. Now Agapetus, who had taken over from John II, headed to Constantinople to talk the emperor out of war, and as you know, he was not successful. He was, however, pretty alarmed to find that the new patriarch was comfortable sharing afternoon tea with Severus. The Pope had no interest in compromise with Monophysites, and Justinian was forced to back down. He was committed to bringing Italy back into the empire, and to ensure Italian cooperation, he could hardly alienate the pontiff. So Anthemus was deposed and went to live under Theodora's protection in the palace, and Severus was sent packing to Egypt once again. The persecutions in Syria resumed on open monophysites. 
Having given in and turned back to persecution, Justinian felt it was time to simply impose a solution on the Monophysites. In 537, the emperor deposed the Patriarch of Alexandria, Theodosius, for refusing to accept Chalcedon. His replacement was an Orthodox monk named Paul, who entered the city with an armed escort and assaulted those who opposed his investment. These attacks and other accounts of torture confirmed in the minds of many Egyptians that the Chalcedonian majority were the enemy imposing their heresy on them. Now Justinian clearly didn't appoint a bishop to kill anyone, and once these reports reached him, he realised he'd made a mistake, and a commission headed to Egypt, led by Liberius, our career bureaucrat, removed Paul from office and replaced him with a Syrian named Zoilus. Although Zoilus killed no one, the Egyptian Monophysites began to ignore him. They remained loyal to the imprisoned Theodosius, and simply held their own services and worshipped in their own way, ignoring the imperially backed man in Alexandria. Although Justinian had failed to create any genuine resolution to the Monophysite problem, on the surface it seemed like the cause of Chalcedon was continuing to dominate proceedings. The Monophysites were bottled up in Egypt, and with the return of the persecutions, and Africa and Italy to the empire, the Orthodox massively outnumbered the rest. Perhaps in time, the Monophysites would die out, as Severus himself did in February 538. Tales of imperial oppression are a constant refrain in our sources. The picture which emerges is mixed, because there's a tendency for these historians to exaggerate and seemingly complain about the levying of taxes, which from our perspective don't seem too harsh at all. However, Justinian certainly encouraged his tax collectors to do their job, and although resentments never reached the level they had just before Nica, the men under John the Cappadocian's command were never popular. In one of his laws, Justinian urges his people to pay their taxes honestly, to pay for the armies which guard their land. However, it wasn't just armies which the emperor spent his money on. Justinian's love of buildings led to a glut of construction across the decade. Almost all the buildings were for public use, but that's no comfort when you have to sell your family farm because you can't pay your tax bill. Some of the emperor's new projects were obviously beneficial to his people. Restored aqueducts and new hospices were popular, and a huge new granary on the island of Tenedos helped increase the amount of grain which could be brought to the capital from Alexandria. Within the capital, Justinian built the Basilica Cistern to help secure the city's water supply. Capable of holding 80,000 cubic meters of water, the structure is still there today, and an idea of its sheer size is given by its Turkish name, which translates as Sunken Palace. Naturally, Justinian wanted to lavish some attention on Jerusalem, and built the Nia Ecclesia, a church to replace an original construction of Constantine's. Although it's no longer there, the church was said to have impressed everyone with its size. It actually expanded over the side of Mount Zion, and needed huge substructures to support it. Justinian is also credited with restoring 11 other churches and monasteries around the holy city, while supplying wells for several others. 
another large church in Ephesus is said to be the inspiration for St. Mark's in Venice. One of the most expensive projects which the emperor undertook was to construct a brand new city, Justiniana Prima, near to his place of birth in modern Serbia, which was probably intended to take over the ecclesiastical and possibly administrative functions of Thessalonica. However, the city was not well situated and never assumed the prime position it was intended to. Although Justiniana Prima was a blatant bid for immortality, most of Justinian's constructions were admired. The problem was that to initiate so many projects all at once was bound to put a strain on the empire's finances. Considering that the wars in Africa and Italy were being launched at the same time, it's not hard to see why the emperor has a reputation for being reckless. To help pay for all this, the emperor encouraged John to streamline government administration. This task was motivated by ideology as well as necessity. The emperor and his prefect were genuinely concerned with removing corruption and inefficiency. Their vision was for a much smaller but better paid administration made up of men from modest backgrounds rather than local aristocrats. To begin with, they outlawed the sale of provincial governorships. A pattern we're familiar with from the history of Rome was still in effect, where men would pay a fee or a bribe to the Praetorian prefect and would then make back their investment through irregular means. Governors would now swear oaths upon taking office, and local bishops and wealthy citizens were encouraged to keep an eye on them, and also to help out with minor legal disputes that need not waste the governor's time. Justinian also began to tinker with the system of provincial administration which had existed since Diocletian's reforms. He largely removed the diocesan level of administration, which had become particularly bloated with ineffective office holders. This was a return to former times, when the provincial governors would report directly to their supervisors, in this case the Praetorian prefect, and in many cases governors were given both civil and military responsibilities, something Diocletian had been very concerned would lead to more revolts. By Justinian's time, though, it was seen as an unnecessary extra expense. As with most of what Justinian attempted, there was a genuine concern to make the empire better at the core of this strategy. One example of the administrative reordering saw a new quaestorship created to rule an extraordinary-looking territory, which combined the Danube border provinces of Scythia and Moesia, together with Caria in Anatolia, the Cyclades Islands, and Cyprus. This seemingly bizarre combination was an attempt to make sure that the vulnerable border provinces would be allied with richer areas that could help support them, with both revenue and grain. Other measures, though, were deeply unpopular. The public post was restricted to save money, leading to many furious farmers of inland provinces who had to pay for their own corn to be transported to ports, leading to much spoilage and extra costs. Some were left destitute and headed for the capital. It was the obvious place to go to find work, and those who couldn't find it turned to begging or crime. 
The population of Constantinople had quickly recovered from Nika, and by the end of the decade was swelling dangerously again. Justinian appointed another new quaestorship to act as a sort of passport control. He would help those with legitimate business to transact it quickly and leave, expel those who had no reason to be in the capital, or find work and housing for others. Little did the emperor know that all this effort would soon be irrelevant. Over in Africa, the themes of the 530s played themselves out in the reconquered province. A new streamlined administration arrived to take charge of the situation, construction began across the area, and money was tight. Once Belisarius had left, the first task was to restore all Aryan churches to Catholic worship and distribute former Vandal property. The estates not taken by the state were given back to their original owners. Given that about a century had passed since that time, endless lawsuits and a good amount of forgery sprung up as anyone with their wits about them looked around to see whose ancestors they could claim were their own. While everyone adjusted to the New World Order, the Moors began to raid imperial territory. You'll recall from episode 11 that I talked about how the balance between the desert and the sown land had changed over the centuries. Where once Moorish tribes had been a minor nuisance to the settled Romans, the Vandals had been repeatedly troubled by them, and now the Byzantines were to suffer the same. If you look at the border of the African provinces, which you can do if you have the time to glance at the map which accompanied episode 11, you'll see that it stretched for hundreds of miles. Although we use the term Moors as a catch-all, many different tribes lived on the borders and enjoyed raiding the settled communities. The Berbers, the Luata, the Frexi. The General Solomon was quickly given full military and civil powers, combining the roles of Praetorian Prefect and Magister Militum to organise the defence of the area. When he took office in 535, he was assaulted on two fronts and spent the next two years pushing back the tribes while hastily building fortifications along the border. This all cost a lot of money, and Justinian had decided not to send any. From the emperor's point of view, Africa was a rich collection of provinces and should be able to pay for its own defence. However, this was an unrealistic goal for a country undergoing such change. And by Easter 536, discontent about pay and other matters led to a mutiny as a group of soldiers tried to kill Solomon. The attempt failed and the general slipped away to Sicily to seek help from Belisarius while the mutineers looted Carthage. This brings us up to the start of the Italian campaign, where I mentioned that Belisarius was forced to leave Sicily and deal with the mutiny. A battle was fought as the rebels headed west to Numidia, and although Belisarius handily dispersed the army, the men fled into the countryside, and the general needed to get back to the Italian war. Once gone, the rebels reformed and many other regiments declared in their favour, leaving about two-thirds of imperial forces in revolt. Justinian wasted no time in appointing a man to deal with the situation and sent his cousin Germanus, who we've met before, 
and who was not only a good commander, but as a member of the imperial family, had the necessary authority to win the respect of the mutinous soldiers. He announced that he was not in Africa to crush the mutiny, but to deal with their grievances, and the lenient tactic bore immediate fruit. Many troops returned to Carthage, where Germanus had their back pay waiting for them. The rebels forced a battle soon afterwards, but were defeated. Germanus remained in Africa until 538, when Solomon returned to replace him. Although these two commanders oversaw peace, and the construction of a defensive network of forts, the whole episode demonstrates the messy reality behind Justinian's glossy triumphs. Many of the troops Belisarius left in Africa were barbarian mercenaries, with little loyalty to the empire, let alone the African subjects they now ruled. In fact, many of them were Aryan Christians from beyond the Danube, who took Vandal wives and greatly resented Justinian's anti-Aryan policies. As with the invasion of Italy, if some of the treasure lavished on the Hagia Sophia and other projects had instead been used to pay the troops properly, then a lot of these problems could have been avoided. The unstable border made it harder for Justinian's dreams of restoring the empire to be realised. If Africa could have been quickly pacified, then soldiers could have been transferred to Italy, where they were badly needed. Instead, men had to stay and watch the frontiers, and much of Africa's wealth stayed at home to protect its people. As 540 arrived, and Khusro's army loomed menacingly on the horizon, Justinian's tax-and-spend policies came home to bite him. In order to pay for the eternal peace, he had cut payments to many of the border troops in the east. These limitanii were farmer soldiers, long used to irregular support from the state. However, after eight years with no pay, they were going to provide no effective resistance to an invasion. Meanwhile, Belisarius was camped outside Ravenna, refusing to return and take charge of the army of the east. At this critical juncture, a third front was opened. After a decade of silence, the Bulgars gathered in force and crossed the Danube in early 540. So much for defending his taxpayers, the army of Illyricum was depleted by the Italian war and was unable to stop a massive horde from sweeping across the Balkans. They broke through the long walls and raided the suburbs of Constantinople, took thousands of captives from Thrace and northern Greece, and one group even crossed the Hellespont and ravaged the Anatolian coast. All the optimism of Justinian's first decade in power was quickly draining away. The dangers of overextension that had always threatened had finally become reality. There's just one more incident from the decade that I need to recount. In 536, Procopius records the following. During this year, a most dread portent took place. For the sun gave forth its light without brightness, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse, for the beams it shed were not clear. This darkness is reported elsewhere, from South America to Ireland to China. It seems that for a year or two, summers were colder, 
and the sun less bright. The two most popular explanations are either a comet or meteorite strike, or a huge volcanic explosion. Either could have released enough dust and debris into the atmosphere to temporarily block the sun's rays. The incident might be of little interest to Byzantine history, if it weren't for what's coming next. In two weeks' time, Kusro invades, and the Byzantines are hit hard. Justinian's reconquests and building projects are of no help to the people of Antioch, who will soon see a massive army aimed right at them. As Justinian and Belisarius scramble to restore the situation, no one is aware that a far larger threat is gathering to the south. Thank you so much for listening, and for your feedback on iTunes, at Facebook, and at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 